This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. A divorced couple in Texas is having an almost unbelievable dispute concerning their seven-year-old son. It seems that the mother decided that the boy, at the age of three, was really a girl. So she put the boy in dresses and enrolled him in kindergarten as a girl. But when the boy was with his father, he was all boy. The mother began making plans for the boy to undergo puberty blockers and chemical castration to complete his transition into being a girl. The father objected strenuously. The case finally wound up in Texas family court. When it ended, the judge rejected the jury's recommendation, and Texas Governor Abbott and Senator Cruz called the attempt to change the child into a female child abuse. The Texas Department of Family and Protective Services is investigating. Reporter Madeline Jacob covered the trial from the beginning to the end. She's my guest today on World Lutheran News Digest. And now today's Fast Track. A federal judge has temporarily blocked an abortion ban in Alabama that would criminalize the procedure at any stage of pregnancy in most cases. Pro-abortion groups sued the state after Republican lawmakers approved the bill in May, but both sides expected the law to be blocked in federal court. The bill was to go into effect November the 15th. Pro-life supporters hope the case will eventually reach the Supreme Court to overturn national abortion laws. U.S. District Judge Myron Thompson granted a preliminary injunction yesterday until the court is able to resolve the case in full. The law allows exceptions only if the mother's life is seriously at risk or the fetus has a fatal complication, but would not allow exceptions in cases of rape or incest. Yesterday morning, the Austin, Texas Independent School District Board approved a new sex education curriculum for grades 3 through 8 that encourages all kinds of sex at young ages. It urges kids to join LGBT pride parades and aims to redefine biological sex and erase the words mom and dad from children's vocabulary. More than 100 people testified against the new curriculum on Monday night, and the testimony lasted till well after midnight. Despite that, the school board unanimously approved the new curriculum. A former social worker in Indiana has filed a discrimination complaint against Roncalli High School and the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, claiming that the religious school had no right to discourage her for publicly advocating at the Catholic school, except employees who violate church teachings on same-sex marriage. Over the past two years, Roncalli fired former counselors Shelley Fitzgerald and Lynn Starkey for claiming to be married to other women, this despite Catholic teachers on marriage and homosexuality. Kelly Fisher, a self-proclaimed Voice for Social Justice and a Catholic Charities employee assigned to Ron Colley wrote a pair of public Facebook posts critical of their ouster. One of the posts contained a copy of the letter Fisher had written to the Archdiocese calling on it to change its contract language, barring employees from violations of church teachings such as same-sex marriages. The Archdiocese of Indianapolis is also currently locked in another legal battle over its right to insist that employees uphold its faith. This one against a male teacher at Cathedral High School, so because he was fired for marrying another man. 
A bicameral committee in Colorado's legislature is considering two bills that would tax sacramental wine and insurance premiums paid to fraternal societies such as the Knights of Columbus that sell insurance to their members. The Tax Expenditure Evaluation Interim Study Committee of the Colorado General Assembly is tasked with evaluating recommendations regarding Colorado's tax exemptions and credits from the state auditor. At a hearing today, the legislature study committee is expected to draft a bill concerning the repeal of the excise tax exemption for sacramental wines. The bill would repeal an existing tax exemption for sacramental wine sold and used for religious purposes. World Lutheran News Digest will be back right after these messages. Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth across the room to a speaker system in your home or listen on radios that have built-in smartphone cradles. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org on the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the clear gospel message of Christ crucified for our sins. The messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. This is World Lutheran News Digest. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. My guest today is LifeSite reporter by the name of Madeline Jacob. Miss Jacob has been covering an incredible case of a woman who is trying to convert her seven-year-old son into a woman, and apparently has been doing this since the age of three. Finally wound up in court, and Madeline covered it. Madeline, if you could say hello and tell me a little bit about yourself. Hi, Kip. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I live here in Dallas, which is why I was able to cover the case. I'm a reporter for um, LifeSite News, and more importantly, um, I am a happily married newlywed, and um uh, just really a big advocate of pro-family and pro-life kind of uh, legislation, but more importantly, changing the culture to be more pro-family and pro-life. Let's go into the background of this case a little bit. Uh, who are the players in this and, and how did it wind up in court? And also, I understand there's some very strange developments where the jury came up with one ruling and the judge apparently just threw that away. Yeah, it's um it's it's a very detailed case. So what happened is we have two um individuals who were married, Dr. Ann Georgilis and Mr. Jeffrey Younger. Um and and they were married um a couple of years ago. I think it was 2010 and they I guess decided to have children and they used IVF, so in vitro fertilization and we found out in court that they picked the specific egg donors, the eggs were not supplied by Dr. Georgilis. So the boys are actually not genetically related to Dr. Georgilis. And so these these two, these, this married couple has conceived twins. They birthed the twins. A few years later, Dr. Georgilis tells Mr. Younger, we're getting a divorce. This isn't, this isn't working. And they go to court. And about the time after Mr. Younger uh, moves out, just a few months after, one of the twins, his name is James, he's at his father's apartment, and he has a rag on his head. And he's been playing with the rag on his head for a few days. And in the, in the course of this, at some point in time, Mr. Younger asks him, you know, why do you have a rag on your head? And James replies, Mommy says I'm a girl. And Mr. Younger has this on camera um, of this little three-year-old saying, Mommy says I'm a girl. He doesn't say I'm a girl. He says, Mommy says I'm a girl. 
fast forward, they go through divorce proceedings, there's an annulment, um, Mr. Younger's accused of lying and, and misleading Dr. Georgilis, all of these things happen, but Dr. Georgilis is awarded complete psychiatric and psych, uh, psychological decision-making authority, okay? So Mr. Younger doesn't have any authority for that realm for his two twin boys, um, and Dr. Younger is a pediatrician, or Dr. Georgilis, excuse me, is a pediatrician, so she, she's given that right, but uh, the big concern for Mr. Younger is by this time, by the time the court rules, she gets complete psychiatric and psychological authority over decision-making for the boys. She's actually already enrolled James, one of these two twin boys. They are for girl, but they are twin boys. She's enrolled him at school in school as a girl. So starting in kindergarten, Dr. Georgilis, without telling Mr. Younger, enrolls James, five-year-old, in kindergarten under the name of Luna. Um, so much so does he present as a girl at school that mom files and requests from the court a restraining order so that dad cannot speak with or engage with anybody from school or call James James at school because Dr. Georgios is afraid that will quote unquote out James as a boy because everybody at school believes that he's a girl because of how she's enrolled him, how she dresses him and, and, um, you know, he even uses the little girl's bathroom. So the real issue, though, is we come to court because Mr. Younger doesn't have any decision-making ability in terms of the psych psychological psychiatric realm. He requested a second opinion on James's diagnosis of gender dysphoria, and that's part of what landed them in court. And, and, and there's a lot of detail, so I'm trying to kind of summarize as best I can. But here they are in court, and Mr. Younger's big contention is, look, when James is with me, he's a boy, and he is very happy to be a boy. He dresses in boys' clothes and leaves Dr. Georgios' house, gets in Mr. Younger's car, goes and spends the weekend as a boy, and then he goes home. And Mr. Younger testified during the trial that, look, when this first started happening, James would come to my house dressed in dresses. It's a little but, you know, whatever, he's a, he's a little kid. And he said, so let's just see what happens. But he said one, one morning he woke up. And he found the dresses that James had worn over in the trash can. And he said he, he, when James was up the next morning, he could just see this relief on his face when he was standing there in front of dad dressed in boys' clothes. And he said, you know, that, that's a huge sign to me that something's not right. And then we see this continual, quote-unquote, presentation with dad as a boy, where he just, he's, he's totally a boy with dad. So there's some big concern there over mom socially transitioning the son. Even farther, medical records indicate that mom is already starting to look at um, a medical transition, puberty blockers, which would eventually start cross-sex hormones. Essentially, this will be chemical castration for him, and that's irreversible, yep. I understand. Yes. So um, the expert witnesses in the case were a little divided on to whether it's, quote-unquote, irreversible, but... It, it, everybody can agree that it causes significant risk and, and there are very big side effects. And it shouldn't be started in someone so young. So the pediatrician's uh, records actually recommend that Dr. Georgia seek consultation with the Genesis Clinic when James is eight or nine. So that's next year. That's in, you know, six to eight months when he'll turn eight. And so that's a, that's a huge concern. And another very important point that the science proves is that 85% of children who present as, as the opposite gender under 
before they're an adolescent, by the time they reach adolescence and start to go through puberty, they desist or they return to identifying their, uh, with their biological sex. Okay. So not only do we have, uh, you know, a mom that's already socially transitioned to son against the, the, the father's approval, we have a boy that is quote unquote gender fluid. Even, even his um, counselor testified to the fact that he doesn't necessarily present always in, in one direction or the other. And a mom who wants to act upon all of this lack of clarity and move forward with something that's permanent, semi-permanent, depending on how you want to, you know, which, which side of the fence you, you stand on. And the mother made up her mind when the child was three years old? How can a three-year-old project one sexuality or another? That's actually... Um, Dr. Daniel Schumer, who's a pediatric endocrinologist and who was one of Dr. Georgilis' expert witnesses, testified to different stages when children start to understand gender. And he told the whole courtroom, it's between five and seven when kids start to even understand what gender is. And so, you know, that doesn't really meld with this idea that a three-year-old thinks that they're, they're a girl. Right. You know, go, go to anybody who knows a three year old or, or anybody in that age, go home and ask them, what do you think you are? You're probably going to get a, a, a little bit of a funny answer. I think somebody in the courtroom told me, oh, yeah, I, I asked my four year old, what are you? And he told me he was a choo choo train. Um, they're children. They're 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 three and four years old. Just absolutely incredible. And then what happened? The thing that that the weird twi- uh, twist that this has taken is that a, a Texas jury, of all things, at, with, apparently with an 11-to-1 vote, agreed with the mother. And then and then the judge says, uh-uh, you came to the wrong conclusion. It's really interesting. And I have to be honest, I didn't actually know that in family court in Texas, a jury's decision and ruling is a recommendation to the judge. The judge does not have to uphold what the jury rules. It's strictly seen as a recommendation. And, and there's some nuance to this, right? So one of the – Mr. Younger asked for the jury trial. Dr. Georgia did not. So the jury only ruled on two questions. They were asked two questions, and that's all they were allowed to answer. One, should the current um, agreement be changed from joint managing conservatorship? Because even though Mr. Younger didn't have psychiatric decision-making, he was technically still a joint managing conservator. Should that be changed to a sole managing conservatorship, meaning one parent has all the decisions and is responsible for largely uh, taking care of the kids on the whole? That was question number one. Should it change to sole managing conservatorship? Number two, should the sole managing conservator be Mr. Younger? Um, And the jury said, yes, it should be changed to sole managing conservatorship. No, it shouldn't be Mr. Younger. So they didn't explicitly state that it should be mom. They weren't allowed to, right? The questions didn't allow for fluidity or free response answers, so to speak. But they did rule against that very clearly. And, you know, there's some speculation that some of it has to do with, you know, dad as in the divorce proceedings. There's, you know, some mis- misleading statements in the divorce proceedings where Dr. Georgios claims that Mr. Younger misled her. And those were validated by the court. But Mr. Younger has addressed those. Um, and he actually points out the fact that the court that validated those also validated as fact that Mr. Younger will do any do or say anything he has to to get what he wants, which we can all clearly agree is not a fact. 
So there's some concern that maybe the jury was was worried about dad in that respect. The the opposition pointed him as unstable and narcissistic. But at the end of the day, this jury implicitly said, you know, we, we just heard all this testimony about transgenderism, transgender transitions, how terrible this is. We see the evidence that mom is seeking to move this young boy, this seven-year-old boy in this direction, but we still don't think that he should be with dad who's arguing to protect him. So um, now we've got uh, Judge Kim Cook then uh, apparently said, no, I'm going to give joint custody here. So both parents mm-hmm. are going to have to agree before this can be done, which essentially means that it's not going to happen. Yes. And that was great news. And it came as a complete surprise to everybody on Monday, Mr. Younger, his attorney, I mean, they were just dejected. You know, Mr. Younger said, I've just lost my voice. That's that's it. They're gone forever. Judge Cooks actually delayed her ruling for a day. So who knows what happened, right? On Monday, she said, look, come back Wednesday. I'll read my ruling. And she actually pushed it to Thursday. So who knows what happens between, happened between Monday and Thursday. Her previous actions and um, the way she was kind of handling the case uh, didn't, didn't really indicate that this was going to be the verdict. But I do think that it's, is it a total victory? No, I, I don't think so. But this boy's going to be saved from this medical transition. I think that's huge. And I think that I think it's due largely to the prayer and the public outcry that happened after the jury ruled as they did. I think, you know, it sparked this, you know, national news outcry, so to speak, at least from a lot of the conservative media. And I know that we at LifeSite News, we were asking all of our readers, please pray for this. Well, not Uh, only that, I mean, the governor of Texas and I believe the attorney general have actually opened up an investigation on this case. Uh, I read an article today by Jazz Shaw it said that uh, said that the uh, basically that there are some very basic issues that need to be answered. Not the least of which is was this child abuse and the fear that Shaw has raised in the article is that well now that this is seemingly resolved maybe there won't be an investigation. The attorney general already called for an investigation. Um, he called for it the day before the ruling was issued. It is possible he could retract that. But if you actually read the letter and you can find the, the full letter, there's a link to it in one of my articles at LifeSiteNews.com. He, he actually kind of almost hand slaps the, the Texas Department of Family and, Protective Serv- Family and Protective Services for not noticing this earlier. He said, look, this has been going on for, you guys knew about this for over a year and you haven't done anything. So I don't, I don't think that the center or the focus of the investigation is on who has custody, right? It's on has what the mother's been doing to this child. Is that child abuse? I believe Texas Senator uh, Ted Cruz has actually voiced specifically that this is child abuse. Mm -hmm. Yes, he has. And there are a lot of people who would agree with that. I think it's the American College of Pediatrics who called this child abuse. And really, if you think about it, He's James is seven. Kids don't understand at seven what's going on. And all of a sudden you dress them up in dresses. You put makeup and blush on them and send them to school in dresses and high heels and makeup as a kindergartner. I mean, it's hard not to see that as abuse. And the mother still insists that the child is somehow transgendered. Correct. In fact, from what I've heard, it's quite likely that she will appeal. Did she ever say why she came to this conclusion that James, at the age of three, was transgender? So she told the court. 
court across two different days about kind of the events that led up to this. And the first day she told us that it, it all started with a McDonald's toy. He picked a girl's McDonald's toy. It was a little black coin pouch with a skull on it. And that's when she first started thinking, well, that's a little odd and a little strange and kind of started to pay attention. At least that's what she told us the first day. And then she started to tell us about how he asked for a dress after watching the movie Frozen. And, and then how he asked for another dress when they were at Kohl's. And she would let him wear the dresses at home. But she wouldn't let him go out in them. And finally, she tells the story of how he asked for a dress at the Perot Museum. It's a science museum here in Dallas. And he said, can this be for real? And it was at that moment that she, you know, apparently the, the light went off and, and she said, my kid must be transgender. The next day, she said it had nothing to do with the McDonald's toy. It was really that Perot incident that pushed her over when James asked, can I wear the dress and can it be for real? Um, so who knows what in that progression is the most important, but that's how she tells people uh, or where the idea supposedly came from. Well, you've covered this trial really from the beginning. What was the reaction of the people uh, around the around the courtroom uh, and the the people on the street? What are they? What were they telling you about this case? Um, so I, I have been covering this for a while. I covered it before the the trial started. But what I didn't realize until I actually met some of the supporters in person is that a good number of them thought this was a hoax at first. One of the big champions for Save James said. I came out here and I, you know, found Jeff, sought out Jeff, and I was here to give him a bad time because I thought he was trying to steal money from people. You know, this donation site, look, donate to me for, for legal funds. I thought it had to be a hoax. Jeff Morgan for with Americans for No Fault Divorce interviewed Jeff Younger, and he said even after I interviewed him, I thought, this has to be a hoax. He's still pulling my leg. What's going on? Like, this can't be happening. But, you know, you could see they were all there to support James because having spoken with Mr. Younger and seen what was going on, they realized, wow, this is true, obviously. And throughout the entire court proceedings, people were quite optimistic during the trial itself because what the expert witnesses were saying about the harmful impacts of puberty blockers, of cross-sex hormones, even of social affirmation, which James is already, you know, he's already socially affirmed. You know, there, it was really quite concerning. And so there was a lot of optimism until we heard from the jury, and that's when I think everybody's hearts just broke. Something else I've been reading, the, uh, the drugs that are used to transition have not been approved by the FDA. Nobody really knows what yeah. these drugs do. Mm -hmm. So puberty blockers used for kids with transgender, that's actually what's called an off-label use of that drug. So it's not been studied for that use. They're used mainly, they're used and they were developed for what's called precocious puberty. So that's when kids who are very, very young, five, six, seven, that age, uh, maybe even younger, start puberty. And that can cause some really serious health impacts on these kids. They have shorter lifespans, they have really bad bone issues, they tend to be extremely short. So they use these puberty blockers specifically for this one medical condition, precocious puberty. Using them on a healthy individual, however, has not been studied. It's not FDA approved. The, the you know, years and years of trials and, and studies haven't been done. So there's, medical professionals have absolutely no clue what the long-term impacts of these drugs are. So like you said, with chemical castration with these puberty blockers, you know, they're, they're irreversible. 
we we really don't know. We don't know what the long term impact in fifty years will be on individuals, and that's you know that's that's not really ethical as a doctor or as a physician to prescribe a medication to someone when you have no idea what the what the the um, the risks are. Medical roulette here. Hopefully it'll work. Don't really know. Where does it go from this point? Uh, this the the judge has made the ruling, but. This case, I'm, I'm sure, is far from far from finished. Yeah, so the judge has made her ruling. Unfortunately, she, she gagged both Mr. Younger and Dr. Georgeless until the boys are 18. So I don't think that that bodes well. As I mentioned before, this is a victory, but a small one. When, whenever the, the court is trying to, you know, when you're gagging somebody, it really leaves you concerned about what you're trying to hide. At least, um, at least that's a big concern of mine. So from here, both parents are going to have to agree on every single decision that they make. And I don't see that happening very easily, which means that the amicus attorney, the court appointed attorney is going to become the tiebreaker. Okay. And so that's a little concerning as well, because that puts the government effectively in control of, of these boys lives. So, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is, um, and I have an interview that, that is at LifeSiteNews.com that it's one of the last interviews. I think it's the last interview that Mr. Younger did. And he said, look, no matter what happens, I'm going to keep pushing this forward because I'm not just here to save my son. That's my first priority is to save my son. But I want to save all of the thousands of other kids whose parents are doing this to them or don't realize that this is happening. You know, people who who are forcing these on their kids for whatever reason, I want to save those kids too. So, you know, this isn't the last we're going to see of this case or hear of this case, hopefully. And, and uh, we're just going to have to keep praying and, and really keep fighting that this moves forward in a productive manner. Now, you work for LifeSite News. Uh, can you tell the people how they can locate LifeSite News on the Internet to follow this case and other cases of interest? Yeah, so uh, they can just head to LifeSite, L-I-F-E-S-I-T-E-N-E-W-S, LifeSiteNews.com, L-I-F-E-S-I-T-E-N-E-W-S, LifeSiteNews.com. And they can follow this case. They can read all of my reports from the trial itself. Um, and we are a big proponent of pro-life and pro-family uh, values. Madeline, I want to thank you very much for being on the program and shedding light on this extremely complex and very, very important issue. Thank you very much for your work. Kip, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the work that you do. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.